Good evening. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We're going to be going over verses 1 through 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 20. Have you ever witnessed a transformation that needed just a little bit more explanation? All of us have witnessed different types of transformations. You have the more mundane kind, then you have the more radical and dramatic kind. Every day we witness different types of transformations. We, we witness a transformation that we might call, might be normal when we see the sunrise and the sunset. Or we see the change of the seasons. Right now we're in winter. We're going to go from winter into spring. and We're going to see things change all around us. We're going to go from cold and dreary to warm and lush. And these transformations have explanations. We know why they occur. They occur because God has placed the earth and the sun in certain places. And he's established these laws. He's fixed them in place to govern our days and our seasons. But what about the more radical transformations, the kind that need more explanation, the kind where you see the before and you don't even recognize the after? Well, in our text this evening, we have such a transformation in the, king, in the story of King Manasseh. And it sometimes can get overlooked. Because when it comes to radical transformations, sometimes people may first think about the Apostle Paul. Struck Uh, struck down to the ground, blinded, met with the risen Christ. And he goes from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian himself. Or you might think of Nebuchadnezzar. He goes from destroying Solomon's temple, exiling the people of God, to all of a sudden saying that God is sovereign over all in Daniel chapter 4. But I believe a good case can be made that the story of King Manasseh is actually one of the more radical transformations in all of Scripture, and I believe it to be worthy of more consideration. And so I tried to find an example of a transformation like this in history and in literature, and I didn't really find anything to suit my satisfaction. So I decided to try to create a hypothetical. So when you think about it, it might be something like this. What if you woke up one day, And you turned on your television or your social media and you saw this headline. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un converts to Christianity. And at first you think, well, that's probably clickbait or something like that. But then you see that CNN, Fox News, Reuters, all these outlets have reported it. You look at the story and then it details his conversion. It says that he used to ban Bibles, but now he wants them printed in his country. He wants to build churches and schools to instruct his people in the Christian faith. He wants prayers to be said in the public square. And he's repented of his human rights violations and the atrocities and so forth. And not only that, but he's also wanting to stop his nuclear um, development, but he actually wants to pursue peace with the surrounding nations. I want you to think about something for a second. If that were to happen, what would account for it. I know that we might think that there was something else going on, but what if it were real? What would account for such a radical turn of events in the life of a man who was steeped in idolatry, entrenched in sin? And I want you to hold that thought for a second because that's one of the major questions we're going to address. What can cause a radical sinner to turn to God? 
But before we get into our text, I want us to set the stage just a little bit to help us understand where we're at in the Bible, to help us understand where our text falls within the scope of redemptive history. And so there's just a couple of key dates that I want us to keep in mind. First, you have the Exodus at about 1400 BC. Then you have Solomon's reign at about 950 BC. And up until then, you have what was known as the United Monarchy. There were no other kings during the time of Saul, David, and Solomon's reign. And that all comes to an end after Solomon, where the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 722 BC, the Assyrian army besieges the northern kingdom of Israel. They take the people into exile, and they also bring in many other people into the area from Assyria. But essentially, after 722 BC, there is no more northern kingdom, and all you're left with is the southern kingdom of Judah, which would fall, which would eventually fall in 586 BC. And this puts our text in between the fall of the northern kingdom and the fall of the southern kingdom at around 650 BC. Now, with all that background in mind, I want us to look at our text under two broad headings. First, we're going to see the malevolence of Manasseh in verses 1 through 11. And second, we're going to see mercy shown to Manasseh in verses 10 through 20. And so let's examine that first heading, the malevolence of Manasseh, by reading verses 1 through 9. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them. All the law, the statutes, the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Notice in verse 1 how long this radical reign of Manasseh lasts. It lasts 55 long years, which is the longest reign of any of the kings. So not only is he the most wicked king in the Bible, on top of that, he reigns the longest. Normally, this type of wickedness ends up cutting a king's reign short. Their evil tends to be the, the noose around their neck. But in this instance, God has a purpose in allowing Manasseh to reign for so long. Oftentimes, God allows evil rulers to flourish as judgment upon the nation that has blasphemed God. And this is what God seems to be doing here. And this may make us wonder, is this something that we see in our day as we see wicked rulers flourish and we see the rejection of our God 
the decline of our nation? Are we under God's judgment as we see evil rule? But just how evil was Manasseh? In verse 2, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations. In other words, Manasseh had fully assimilated into the idolatrous practices of the surrounding culture. He's, just, he's not giving in to them. He's fully embracing them. He's embracing these practices. He's joyfully participating in them. He's not being a light to the nations. He's not leading according to God's word. And you have this cycle throughout this time period where there was an evil king, you would have some reforms, but evil was always lurking around the corner. It wouldn't last. In the history of Israel's kings, this evil seems to culminate in Manasseh's wicked kingship. And then you get this laundry list, as it were, of evil practices committed by this evil king. He rebuilt the altars to the false gods that were torn down by his father. He blasphemes the temple of God by building altars to Canaanite gods, the storm god Baal, and the female goddess in the Asherim. And when it says that he worshiped all the hosts of heaven, some have suggested that this refers to the integration of Assyrian gods as well. And so it seems that Manasseh never met a god that he wasn't willing to bow down to and worship. He wanted to cover all of his bases. And this is how our culture continues to think today. People are so adverse to the idea of exclusive truth that they they run away from it. In general, people don't want to worship one God exclusively. Objective truth is hard to deal with in our culture. People just don't want to deal with it. Because if you say something is objectively true, then you're automatically excluding something else. Everyone speaks of your truth or or my truth as if that actually means anything. Everyone wants to be inclusive, which is a buzzword for our day. No one wants to exclude anyone or anything, so we're just going to say it's all true. Because we live in a day where there's immense cultural pressure not to say anything that might trigger somebody or cause the slightest bit of discomfort. So it's easier just to not say anything. But this all comes from somewhere. And it comes, it starts with the rejection of the one true eternal God. And rejection of God is never really, it's not frozen still. It's not static. Sometimes people may remark, how does it affect you if someone commits this or that sin? You should be okay with it because it doesn't really affect you immediately. My response is always that sin doesn't stay encapsulated in your room with the lights off and the shades drawn. Sin will get out, it will affect me, and it will affect all of society. It always moves forward and leads to something else, and it's usually something worse. And for Manasseh, it's something much worse. Because in case you think worshiping false gods is harmless, or maybe you think it's just chanting, singing in a circle, wearing weird robes. What's wrong with that? Just let them do that. But false worship is not harmless, and it oftentimes hurts other people. And in the case of Manasseh, it hurt the very ones he was supposed to nurture and protect. Verse 6 says that he made his sons pass through the fire. Notice it says sons, plural, which means he burned not just one, but at least more than one of his sons. 
And as a father, it's really hard for me to understand that type of evil. But the Bible helps us when it says that the heart is desperately sick. This is the level to which sin goes. Now, child sacrifice, you might say, well, that's an ancient practice. That's irrelevant. No one does that today. Well, child sacrifice still happens today. We've just become more efficient at it. Because people take their children to be dismembered in the womb every single day. And why do they do it? Most of the time they do it because they think that by murdering their child, they're going to get a better life. They sacrifice their children to the God of comfort. Which is exactly why Manasseh did it. The ancient practice of child sacrifice was done to appease the gods. Why? To bring rain, to bring crops, to bring prosperity so that they could have a better life. Yes, this still goes on today. And the laundry list of evil continues. On top of the murder of innocent children, verse 6 says that he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. These were all detestable acts that can be summed up by trying to seek power and knowledge outside of God. Fortune-telling and omens, these were used to gain insight into the future without God. Sorcery is an attempt to create false miracles, signs and wonders through satanic influence. Necromancers attempt to communicate with the dead. No one does that nowadays, right? Well, you have your fortune tellers, your ghost hunters, but also Roman Catholics. When they pray to the saints or to Mary, they're attempting to communicate with the dead. And these are all things that Deuteronomy says not to do. So it's almost as if, as if Manasseh went to the book of Deuteronomy and just simply did exactly the opposite of what it said. At the end of verse 6, it says that he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it might be tempting to think that because of the level that he engaged in, that we are somehow different or better than Manasseh. But that's simply just not true. Manasseh's evil shows us what happens when God's hand of restraint has been lifted. We all might be as evil as Manasseh were it not for God's restraining hand. Because scripture declares that we are all evil sinners and there's no restraint on our sin without God. Also notice the consequences of Manasseh's evil. It provoked God to anger. You see, God cares about what you do in this life. That's a basic point, but it always needs to be restated because God doesn't just sit idly by if you reject him. In fact, if you reject him, you provoke him to anger. And the fact is, is that if you're not in Christ, God is angry with you. Because Christ alone is the one who bore God's anger and wrath at the cross. And outside of Christ, God's anger and wrath still hang over your head. An angry God? Well, I would never worship a God like that. Yeah, that's right, because the Bible says that we all hate him. Scripture declares that all of us in our fallen nature don't want to have anything to do with him. There's no one that seeks after God, as Romans tells us. So it should be no surprise that people reject this idea that God has anger towards sin and towards them. 
You know what most people don't reject? They don't reject the love of God. Sure, they have a skewed view of it, but most people love this idea, the idea of the love of God, because it's easy. It makes us feel good. Oh yeah, God loves me because I'm just so precious. But you know it's not easy. The idea that God is angry with you, that doesn't feel good. But when it's true, it needs to be recognized. And if we look at scripture carefully, God's righteous anger is an expression of his holiness. And so God's love and anger are in perfect harmony. You can't have love without a hatred for evil. And as we'll see later, a lot of times when God's anger and wrath are poured out, his loving mercy isn't far behind. But Manasseh continues to provoke God to anger with his evil. Verse 7 says that he put a carved image of his own making in the temple. So if you're keeping track, he's already put altars to Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts in the temple. And then he puts his own personal carved image in there. And this is all in direct contradiction to the principle found in verse 7, which says this, that the Lord God's name is to be forever in the temple. Here's the principle that the people of God are to be exclusively devoted to God alone. And the way the people were supposed to do that was to worship God by meeting God in the place that was specifically designated for that purpose. This was the purpose of the temple. It gave them their identity as wholly owned by the God that bought them out of the land of Egypt. But by running after false gods, Manasseh and the people lost their true identity. And in losing their true identity, they lost sight of who they were supposed to be as a people and as a nation. And a nation that identifies more with Baal than with the true God no longer has a right to the land given to them by that God. And this is because of God's standard of holiness. He demands that you follow him and that you follow his standard of holiness, which is his law. Or else there would be consequences. And these were specific to the people of Israel. Take a look at verse 8. Now I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them. All the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Remaining in the land given to them by God was always contingent upon covenant faithfulness to the law of God. In the section of covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28.63, it says that one of the consequences of disobedience is that you will be torn from the land. This isn't anything new. The blessing and cursings of God were always there. But they weren't taken to heart by Manasseh or the people. Now, because they were flagrantly disobedient to God, they're in the process of being torn away from the land. And this would culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem in just a matter of years. And they were led into these covenant curses by their own king. Then it says that Manasseh misled the people to do more evil than Israel's enemies. His evil wasn't contained to himself. As we said before, sin cannot be contained. 
Manasseh's sin spread to all the people. And here's this amazing responsibility that belongs to leaders. It belongs to kings. They're responsible for the direction of the people. And this wicked king is responsible for bringing curses upon his own people. The sons of Israel were supposed to be a holy people distinct from their enemies. And now they've become worse than them. But here is where the story of Manasseh takes an amazing turn. And it starts with the judgment of Manasseh. Take a look at verses 10 through 11. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. God would have been perfectly just to cut Manasseh off from his reign at any point in his treachery. God has already delayed judgment, and then God extends even more mercy by speaking to the king and his people. And what was their response? But they paid no attention. The people didn't turn from their wicked ways. And in fact, in, parallel, in the parallel account in 2 Kings 21, 16, it says that Manasseh responded to this mercy of God by going on a violent, murderous, bloody rampage, filling the streets with innocent blood. And some believe this ancient Jewish tradition that Manasseh was actually the one that executed the prophet Isaiah, which would be consistent with his tendency towards bloodlust. And finally... Manasseh gets what's coming to him. And I want you to notice something in verse 11. Who sent the commanders of Assyria against Manasseh and the people? The Lord. God used a wicked foreign nation to bring judgment to the king, to the king and to the people. And what that tells us is that God is sovereign over all the nations and he uses them as his own instruments for his own purpose. Oftentimes, we want to remove God from the actions of humans, but we can't forget that God has a purpose in all of these things from the beginning. God frustrates the plans of the peoples. It's the plans of his heart that will stand from generation to generation. And most commentators believe that the surrounding nations were in rebellion to Assyria at this time. And Manasseh likely joined in on this rebellion, which would be why the Assyrians came against Judah. This shows us that God even uses world events for his own purposes. The Assyrians wanted to tamp down a rebellion, but God used their evil intentions for his good purposes, to bring judgment to Manasseh and to the people. God sends the Assyrian army to haul the king off to Babylon. And for so long, Manasseh's reign of terror goes unchecked. He does whatever his evil heart desires. But now, the judgment of God has come, and they haul Manasseh off to Babylon in hooks and chains. The hooks were probably some kind of object like rings. The Assyrians used these to bring deep humiliation to those that they had captured. They would put these hooks on the nose or lips and drag you around with, with them like a dog. There's even ancient arts depicting the Syrian king controlling someone with the hooks in one hand and gouging out the eyes of a captive with the other. 
So try putting yourself in Manasseh's place here. This is happening to him. He probably sees this happening to other people. He's being treated in a, in a way that he's never been treated. He's no longer in power. And now, most likely, Manasseh is deeply afraid for his life, humiliated and in physical pain. And so, so now we see this once bold, evil king, now bound with hooks and chains, imprisoned in a foreign land, rotting in an Assyrian dungeon. Now, about some time ago, my wife and I were doing our Bible readings, and the way we would do it is she would read her portion out loud, and then I would read my portion out loud. And one day we came to this story of King Manasseh in the parallel passage in 2 Kings 21. And so I finished up the section it ended with Manasseh's bloody rampage. And then it says this. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So I close up my Bible and I say, whoa, <clears throat> Manasseh was a real bad dude. And so then my sweet, beautiful wife says softly, isn't it amazing that Manasseh repented? I say, uh, uh, what, did I miss something here? I reread the section, no repentance. So I'm thinking, okay, honey, are you misremembering again? But no, she was right, as wives tend to be, because it turns out 2 Kings doesn't record his repentance. And I had read the Bible before, but I had totally forgotten about this part in Chronicles. So I go to the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and it hits me like a ton of bricks. He repented. And here's where we see mercy shown to Manasseh. Look at verses 12 through 13. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. He repented. Earlier I asked, what would account for such a radical turn of events in the life of an evil man? Well, here it is. There's only one thing. It's God's supernatural mercy and grace. The only thing that could possibly account for this is God's grace powerfully working in his life. There were other kings that faced similar situations. Are we to think that King Manasseh was better than them? Obviously not. It was God's effectual grace that caused this man, steeped in sorcery, steeped in sin and idolatry, a necromancer with blood on his hands, to all of a sudden become a lover of God. And as I was reading some of the commentators, most of them didn't believe that the repentance here actually happened. One commentator said something like this, the historicity of the account isn't important, but it's the theology that matters. Why do they think that? They think that because they don't have a category for God's radical, supernatural mercy. No man could change so quickly, they would say. But God's mercy is the only thing that could account for this radical change. God is the one who turned Manasseh's heart like a channel of water. And God had done this before, earlier in chapter 30, where there was a letter sent to the tribes of Israel with a command to repent and to follow the Passover once again. Some repented, 
And then it says this in verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. God is the one who grants repentance. And I can tell you this, Manasseh didn't turn to God solely from his own will because we saw what he, what he did with his own will. He spilled the blood of his own people. He spilled the blood of his own children and he spurned God at every single turn. But this is what we all do. We always reject God. And just like with any sinner, it takes God's effective, powerful grace to cause a sinner to turn. Notice also that it was when he was in great distress that he called out to God. This shows us that God can use the most difficult times in our lives for his own purpose. Sometimes God drives us to rock bottom, and that's what it takes for us to come to our senses. So as bad as Manasseh was, in the end, he actually did what was right. This is what we should do when we find ourselves in great distress. We should repent like he did. We should humble ourselves like he did. Distress and difficulty shouldn't be an occasion for hardness of heart, but it should be an occasion for repentance and for renewal. It should be a reminder to run to the living God for mercy. We know that's easier said than done sometimes, but we know that God is merciful and we know that God is with us. I also want us to notice the content of Manasseh's prayer because it follows closely 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is what he did. He humbled himself. He prayed. He sought God's face. And he turned from his wicked ways. This is how basic the prayer is. It's simple. I say this because Manasseh has been, Manasseh's prayer has been the subject of much speculation historically. So much so that there is even a book belonging to the Apocrypha called The Prayer of Manasseh. And it purports to have the content of his prayer. But it was written much later and can't actually be written by Manasseh. But since he was so evil and he later received the favor of God, there was this idea that the content of the prayer must have been something really good. It must have been something really special and spiritual. And this is how we continue to think today. There's all sorts of superstitious ways that we have come up with in a vain attempt to garner the favor of God. We think that if we do special rituals and outlandish things, that we will somehow, that that'll make us somehow more spiritual and God will show favor to us. But Manasseh didn't need to do any of that. He didn't need to pray in unintelligible speech, stacking phrase upon phrase of ecstatic utterances. He didn't need to light candles or confess his sins to a priest. And we don't need to speculate about the content of the prayer because guess what? It's all already there. The kind of prayer that God hears is simple. Nothing fancy. It's not theatrical. Just turn to God and turn from sin. God heard Manasseh's prayer and he brought him back to his kingdom. Just look at the lavish nature of God's mercy here. Not only does God grant repentance to Manasseh, which he didn't have to do, he spares his life while in captivity, and he restores him back to his throne. 
This is just an amazing picture of what God can do for those that humble themselves and seek his face. And we know that not all circumstances turn out like this, but we know that God can pour out his mercy as he sees fit. Then it says, Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So here's just a simple, straightforward question here. Do you know that the Lord is God? Sometimes there's an outward confession of that, and sometimes there's actually no evidence of that confession. But not Manasseh. Look what he did. Look at Manasseh's true repentant response in verses 14 through 17. Afterward, he built an an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel, and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Sometimes we need to be honest with ourselves. If there's no evidence that we know that the Lord is God, then we probably don't know God. Because this is what true repentance looks like. Look, like, looks, look at how Manasseh rebuilt the walls of the city to make them stronger, to protect God's land, to protect God's city. And in verse 15, he removed the foreign gods and their altars. He removed what turned his heart away from the living God. He threw them out of the city. He didn't just leave them there. He didn't mix in a little Baal worship with his worship of the Lord. He said, that's it now. That's it. My heart is now dedicated to the one true God. When one's heart is changed, the the things of the world grow strangely dim. They no longer have the same draw that they used to have. And that's why he also restores the right and true sacrifices to God. Now, instead of blaspheming God, he restores the true worship of God. Instead of murdering his own people and leading them astray to false worship, he instructs them to serve the Lord God of Israel. True repentance responds to God's mercy by taking action, and change necessarily occurs. Sometimes it's gradual, sometimes it's sudden, but the fact that change occurs is certain. That's why if you confess that the Lord is God, but you continue in your wickedness, you continue in your idolatry, just like before, then it says a lot about the truthfulness of your confession. Manasseh truly repented, and God continued to show mercy to Manasseh even till the end. Look at verses 18 through 20. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. It's amazing how God shows mercy to to Manasseh even till the end of his life. 
His life is spared. His reign is restored. He dies. He's not murdered by his adversaries. And he's buried in his own house. Things could have turned out a whole lot worse were it not for the mercy of God that broke in to the life of Manasseh. And lastly, I want to point you to Ammon, Manasseh's son, who took his place on the throne. It says that Ammon did all that his father had done previously. Take a look at verses 23 through 24. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. What a contrast to his father. One responded to God's mercy and grace and the other did not. We know that God, only God, can change the heart and cause a sinner to turn. But we also know that we're called to turn as well. Both are true. They're not mutually exclusive. It's precisely because of God's powerful grace that any sinner can turn and respond. If Manasseh can be saved, then anyone can be saved by God's grace. Manasseh had absolutely nothing to commend himself before God. And yet God's grace struck him. Just like it struck Paul on the road to Damascus, just like it struck the thief on the cross, and just like it struck you and me. And now God's grace has appeared in a, in a different way. The greatest manifestation of God's grace has been made known to us at the cross of Christ. This is where God's mercy is to be found. So the question is have you responded? Have you turned? And if you have, have you tossed the foreign gods? Have you tossed the idols? Have you tossed them into the streets like yesterday's trash? Because that's all that they are. How have you responded to God's mercy? I pray that God would continually show us mercy, that we may continually respond to his mercy.